What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan, and today we're diving back into everybody's favorite selfie, the Shroud of Turin. A few weeks ago, Alan Parr, a Christian apologist with a pretty sizable YouTube channel, had on Jeremiah Johnston, another apologist and theologian, and they listed their top five reasons, shocking reasons, why the Shroud of Turin is the actual face of Jesus. And it was so bad, you guys. So it was, it was literally painful to watch. So naturally, I thought I'd share that pain with all of you. Now, we've covered the Shroud uh, in depth in previous episodes, but in case you're new to this topic, here's a real brief primer of what's going on. The Shroud of Turin is a rectangular linen cloth. It's about 4.3 meters by 1.1 meters wide. It's got a faint brownish image on it of a person front and back. This person is beaten. They've been scourged. They've got bloody armholes, all sorts of stuff. Basically consistent with it being a crucified Jesus. And that is exactly who it's claimed to be. Whether the image is authentic because it was imprinted when Jesus miraculously resurrected or because it was crafted by some later medieval artist, basically nobody thinks it was somebody other than Jesus. The definitive history of the Shroud begins when it shows up in France in the 14th century. Naturally, those who think it's authentically Jesus's burial shroud think that the cloth is from the first century, which is when Jesus was buried. So if you want more detail on the image formation, carbon-14 dating, all that kind of stuff, you can check out our Turin playlist when you're done with this video. With all that being said, let's not keep the people waiting. We're going to count down, guys, from five to number one, and you want to stay tuned because number one is the most convincing reason why we believe that the Shroud of Turin is indeed the actual grave clothes of Jesus Christ. So Full disclosure, Jeremiah Johnston has a very meandering sort of talking style. His tangents have tangents. So this video is going to be a bit more edited than normal to try to make these somewhat comprehensible for you. But as always, the link to the full version will be in the description. So reason number five is what? What changed my view from skeptic of Shroud to actually being a Shroud believer to find it so persuasive is number five, the Turin Shroud is the most studied archaeological artifact in the world. First impressions, not really sure why this is good evidence, but I mean, I guess it's better to have had it studied a lot than not studied much, so... Okay. Now, look, like, let's let that set up for a minute. I mean, I've been to museums all over the world, the Pergamon Museum in, uh, in Berlin, Germany. I've been to the uh, Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem. I've been to beautiful museums that have amazing artifacts all, the wor all over the world that nobody questions. Are you sure nobody questioned them? I mean, the implication here is that there's some kind of double standard. Like, you've got all these other artifacts that are just accepted without question. But when it comes to the Shroud, suddenly it's a bunch of skepticism. That's just not the way anything works. The specific artifacts he mentions are the Shrine of the Book, and that is a shrine that contains the first seven scrolls that came from Qumran. Not sure exactly what there is to question. The only real claim is that these were holy writings from the past, and they've been dated and examined, so not really much of a claim going on there. Kind of same thing with Pergamum. It uh, has a lot of exhibits. The one that he's probably referencing is the main attraction, which is the altar. The altar is dated to 180 to 160 BCE. It's a beautiful example of Hellenistic art. Again, not really sure what we're supposed to be questioning. I mean, it's an altar, and that's what it is. Not really sure what he wants us to be skeptical about. But in any case, these are utterly and completely unlike the Shroud of Turn. If it was just like, oh, look at this amazing artifact, this example of medieval art, then okay, it'd be fine. But what Alan and Jeremiah want us to believe is that this shroud, this cloth, is excellent evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that is a very different claim. When we look at the Shroud of Turin, it's not only the most studied artifact of all time, it's the most cross disciplinary studied artifact of mm. all time. We're not talking about a bunch of theologians. And we respect the theologians that who have taken sense. a look at this. Wow. We are talking about weapons specialists from Los Alamos Laboratories. Wow. The atom bomb folks. Rocket science. Rocket science? Are, are you planning on shooting the Shroud of Turin to the moon? Like strapping it to an ICBM or something? No? Then why should we care that a rocket scientist and a weapons specialist looked at the Shroud of Turin? Now, this, this I understand is very technical. It's a little known fact, but it turns out 
weapons specialists actually don't specialize in examining ancient artifacts. They specialize in weapons. This point is weird, and it's something he brings up a lot. That was used by these weapons scientists. From what I understand, outside of the priests who were there, no theologians were there. These were rocket scientists that were there. And so these individuals were so careful. Again, these are mainly rocket scientists. So it's clear what's actually going on here. Jeremiah is saying that rocket scientists are involved because rocket scientists are really smart people. And if like a really smart person said something, well, I guess, golly, it must be true. This is like bragging that a physicist looked over your structural drawings for your house and said it was good. This actually happened to me in my life when I was signing on to be an uh, analyst doing some side work, uh, moonlighting. I had years of experience in the industry for the thing I was analyzing. And when the person who hired me was introducing me to the executives, he didn't talk about the over a decade of relevant experience he had. No, he talked about, oh, we've got a nuclear engineer on the staff, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with nuclear engineering. And all the executives were like, oh, wow, a nuclear engineer. <laughs> I mean, I am a nuclear engineer, though, and that is a cool and impressing impressive sounding title not gonna lie uh the fact that you know it's like oh nuclear engineer that was not a small part of why i chose that major but in any case just because i as a certified smart person says that the shroud isn't authentic doesn't mean that it's fake right and it's likewise just because some rocket scientist looked at some pictures it doesn't mean anything but guys think about it if only three or four people studied this and said oh you know what we don't find this to be a hoax then you'd be like, well, okay, you know what? How, why would we believe these three or four people? But if it's been studied over and over and over and over again, mm -hmm. people who are of sci scientists, people yes. who are of different, you know, people who study blood, people who study these things, and all of them are coming together, and no one up to this point is able to show that it is a hoax. So, so the picture that Alan and Jeremiah are painting is that like legions of scientists from across the world have handled the shroud, subjected it to tests using all their modern equipment, and nobody can find out what that it's a hoax. Nobody can prove it. This is at best misleading. Now, it is true, a lot of ink has been spilled on the subject of the Shroud of Turing. Plenty of papers have been published, and they're papers in real journals. So in terms of actual research being able to be done on the artifact itself, people who have had access to the thing they're studying, there hasn't been that much. You've got one week of research in the 70s. That was the STIRP team. They, that spun off a you know bunch of papers, 35 or so. I don't know the exact count. You had another spurt of handling in the 80s with the radiocarbon dating, and then like a handful of bits since then. Not very much, all told, less than two weeks of actual time touching it. But don't take my word for it. Take Jeremiah's word. And they studied it for hours, well, years actually, but they were with the shroud. They had five days of 24-hour periods to do anything they wanted with the shroud in the royal palace. So when you said that scientists from all over the world had used the best tools available to them in the 21st century to study the shroud, what you actually meant was that a handful of people from unrelated fields like rocket scientists and weapons specialists had used the tools available to them in the 70s and 80s, which they had five days to look at it. So it's actually been handled and examined closely for five days. The rest of the work has been done on photos, reanalyzing the work that was done before, like uh, using their data and results to draw new conclusions, building new computer models, etc. Now, I don't want to imply that that research is a waste of time or anything. It's not. But is it comparable to say like the Dead Sea Scrolls, where many researchers who have expertise in relevant fields have had access to the documents themselves and been publishing on them for decades. If this is the most studied artifact ever, how are we going to judge that? Are we going by a count of peer-reviewed papers, hours spent handling it, hours spent researching it, words that have been written on it? Do we count hours looking at a photo as more or less than an hour looking at the actual artifact? Do they count as equal? It's not clear how we would even go about assessing this claim, and if we did go about it, that the shroud would come out on top. But more importantly, the claim being made here is that this is the most studied artifact of all time, and the implication of that is that with this much study, there's no way it would have been revealed, not revealed as a hoax if it, was, uh, if it wasn't authentic. Basically, there's no way a hoax could have gone undetected all this time. In order for that to be to be persuasive at all, at least to be persuasive to me, scientists and historians would need to have actual, like, regular access to the artifact. 
so they could run tests, so they could confirm hypotheses, so they could test their ideas over again and run additional tests as necessary in order to answer the questions that they have. That's not what we get. If you read the papers on the, the Shroud, you don't have to go very far where you get researchers saying, if we had access to the Shroud to run this test, we could we could learn this thing, or we would like to run this other examination, or it would be nice if we could redo the radiocarbon dating or whatever, but they're not able to. So in order for this to be persuasive at all, at least to be persuasive to me, scientists and historians would have actually needed to have regular access to do what they wanted over time. So they could run a test, examine those results, come up with new hypotheses, test those new ones, and kind of go through the iterative process that science is. That's not the situation we have. So at best, this is a weak argument, but realistically, I don't think it carries much weight. Well, anyway, number five was underwhelming, but let's rock on to number four. That's the fifth reason. Let's count down number four. Number four, why do I think that the Shroud of Turin is authentic? Science today still and I'm talking about 21st century scientists, modern science cannot explain how this image is in the cloth. Or we can basically make the same point over again. Okay. By 21st century scientists, you mean 21st century scientists looking at the work done by 20th century scientists over a single week, four decades ago, right? That's what you mean. And in fact, there is a professor friend of ours from Trinity Western University and he was an atheist philosopher. And it was this aspect of the Shroud of Turin that caused him to go from skeptic atheist to sold out believer in Jesus Christ, Alan. So I'm going to press X to doubt on that one. But if this is true, that guy sold out like really low. He should have held out maybe for some, I don't know, some actual evidence instead of just, I don't know, therefore God. Because there's something interesting that happens when the Shroud you have to stand back about eight or nine feet to be able to see it. Yeah, that's interesting. When you go within, so under, a shorter distance, under eight feet, the shroud vanishes. Wow. I, we can't explain that. Okay, that definitely doesn't happen. The shroud does not turn invisible when you're within eight feet of it, like it's an invisibility cloak or something. Now that, that would be really good, impressive evidence of, of something, at least. But, but to be fair, what Jeremiah probably meant to say was that the image on the shroud vanishes now he doesn't i'm assuming i'm being as charitable as i can he doesn't mean that the image vanishes in that like the coloring goes away it's that you you no longer perceive the image but this isn't like some weird convoluted thing this is a we can absolutely 100 percent positively explain what is going on and it's not even that complicated of an explanation so the reason you need to be further back in order to perceive the thing is because it's super faint. Here's an image of what it looks like if you actually look at it, not the polarized, the inverse one that you usually see. But here's what you'd actually see with your eyeballs if you looked at it. You see how faint those markings are? Here's another one that's a, a close-up. Like, there's barely any coloration. It's not very dark. No wonder it's hard to tell that there's a cohesive image on it if you're, like, right up against it. This isn't mysterious the reason is that the image is very faint so when you can only see little bits of discoloration uh your brain actually works really hard to tune out those kind of uh variations those kind of noise because usually it's not relevant and with but when you get far enough away the brain can see oh there's a pattern here and then your brain brings it to your attention so that's just how your brain works. It fills in gaps in what it sees in order to produce a pattern and flags it for you if it's there, you being the conscious you. So, yeah, this isn't like some magical property of the shroud. That's just how faint images are. But I think it shows just how far Jeremiah is willing to reach in order to make his point. He's taking this thing that is completely mundane and pumping it up as, as, as if it's some like magical property of the shroud. It's ridiculous. Um, and by the way, the shroud have, has survived three different fires. It's been doused with water on at least two occasions. So you think about if it was a painting or if it was some kind of weird tattooed pigment, um, you would see effects from that from the fires, right? Right. I don't know. Would you? Can we get a single shred of evidence for anything that you're going to say today? Like there are plenty of marking techniques that once dried and cured could survive 
high heat. They could survive having water spilled on them. Hell, I screen print all the time. The way you cure the ink so that you know it doesn't run and it isn't tacky and everything, you cure it by heating up the shirt. I left it under the heater for too long and it burns the cotton, but the ink, the image is just fine. Now, I'm not. that's not to say that there's like a splash of ink and that's what's making the markings. What I am saying is that Jeremiah's point is not obvious that no kind of, of marking technique could survive the heat of being exposed indirectly to a fire or having water spilled on it. At best, what this could do is narrow down the range of potential solutions. And that's not nothing, but it doesn't tell you what the source of the image was. And it definitely doesn't tell you that it was magic. And this is a biggie. This is number one for a lot. It's not my number one. In other words, you can't come up with a forgery if you even wanted to. So I know that lots of people are convinced by this point because I hear about it all the time in our comment section. And to be perfectly honest, I don't get it. This whole point, this entire thing is just, I don't know, therefore it must be God. If this is convincing to you, please let me know in the comments why. Because I don't see why a shrug and kind of an incredulous stare should be good evidence. I crap on Bob Rucker's utterly ad hoc neutron absorption hypothesis all the time, but at least he's got a hypothesis, right, that it's testable. This isn't even that. This is just, eh, therefore it must be God, right? I don't know means I don't know. I don't know does not mean, therefore I do know, and it was magic. Anyway, let's move on to number three. The 1988 radiocarbon, that's C14, that's the way things are dated in the scientific community, Car radiocarbon or carbon-14 dating, has been authoritatively shown to be utterly unreliable. Wow, now that is a bold statement. I'm sure he's going to back it up with a ton of evidence. Now, you might be wondering, what is C14 dating? Well, don't worry, Alan was wondering that too. Well, let's talk about that radiocarbon dating. What is that even? It, what is what is that for people who may not even know Absolutely. what Seek 14 and radiocarbon and dating is? You, you take, so it does destroy it, but you take a sample of an artifact and then you subject it to what, what's called radiocarbon dating. And that gives you a fairly accurate date range. Without geeking out too much, I would encourage you to watch a YouTube video on radiocarbon dating. But all you need to know is it's a, it's a standard in the physical sciences of how you can date artifacts. Oh, well, you see the way that C14 dating works is that you take a sample and then you C14 date it. And, you know, that's how it works. Are you... What's hilarious, I didn't notice this the first couple of times I've watched, because I've watched this video a lot at this point, but if, if you look at his face when Alan asked him to explain this, look at the soul leave this man's body. Absolutely. That is the face of a man who knows he has no idea what he's talking about and just got called out on it. Basically, his explanation is, well, the dating method works by using a dating method and shut up. That's how it works. So this makes me skeptical that Jeremiah has any clue whatsoever how this works. And you would think that if you're going to make this one of your top five reasons, you could have taken five minutes to understand it. I mean, or at least brush up on it. Maybe he does understand it and he just didn't feel confident in the moment. But like, you brought this up, my guy. You shouldn't be surprised that somebody asked you to explain it. And the thing is, you do actually need to understand a little bit about how carbon-14 dating works in order to understand what's going on. So don't worry, unlike Jeremiah, I have your back. Here's how radiocarbon dating works. Radiocarbon dating is a type of radiometric dating. It's a way to use uh, radioactive decay in order to date things. Our atmosphere has radioactive carbon, carbon-14, and it's formed by interactions with cosmic rays. Creatures, living beings, take in that atmosphere through things like breathing and eating, so the concentration of carbon-14 in their body and your body is about equal to that of their surroundings. When you die, that process will stop. So the carbon-14 in your body has been decaying away the whole time, but you've kind of been refreshing it as, as you've been breathing in. Well, that's going to stop now. So the carbon-14 is going to stop accumulating and just decay away until there's none left. If you know how much there was at the start, at the moment when the thing died, and you know how much there is now, you can infer when the thing died. 
And we have records through the millennia of how much carbon-14 there was in the atmosphere. So you take a sample, do a little math, and you can get a date. An old sample will have a lot less carbon-14 than a new one because it's had more time to decay away. But there's a problem. Suppose you had a cloth from the third century or even the first, uh, but it has a big grease stain on it. And that grease stain got put on it in the 1950s because somebody wasn't very careful. And if you date it without cleaning it carefully, you'd get an erroneously modern age because that grease also had carbon-14 in it and had a lot more because it was newer, right? So even a little bit of contamination can lead to significant issues in the dating, which is why labs go through a huge amount of effort in order to clean their samples thoroughly using multiple methods to get as much uh, contamination and much sources of carbon out that aren't part of the sample they're trying to date. And they do a pretty good job of it. There are other sources of error too, but we'll leave those aside. The contamination is what's most important for us. This is part of why it's a great idea to have multiple tests from all over your the thing you're dating. It'd be good to have samples from all over, which they didn't do with the shroud. It would have been better had they done that. And it's also good to have multiple labs do it, which they did. Last thing to know, the radiocarbon dating that was done in the late 80s was done using the AMS method. And while that's standard practice now, it was kind of newer technology at the time. So now that you actually know what the heck is going on, let's continue. In fact, um, there are no less than six peer-reviewed journal articles that call into question the three laboratories that carried out the only radiocarbon dating, which happened in 1988, on the Shroud of Turin. And I want to just call out, I have a few apologist friends who have discounted the Shroud of Turin because of this point. So I want to be very transparent. I love these brothers. They're wrong because they have not actually read the peer-reviewed journal articles. Well, we wouldn't want to be like your brothers in Christ and be wrong because we haven't read the articles. Which articles are they? So we can go read them. You're not, you're not, you're not going to tell us? Okay, well, uh, how about what they said? Can you at least tell me what they said? No, not going to tell me that either. Just there's some papers and trust me, they they're amazing. They demolish the other side. I mean, don't ask me what they are or what they say or in what ways they demolish it. But but bro, it's devastating source. Trust me, bro. It's the best. You'd think that if these papers actually showed that the dating was utterly unreliable, he might, you know, maybe mention the papers, perhaps. Now, I have read a bunch of papers on the carbon-14 dating, and so I'm going to have a guess at the six that he's talking about. He's probably starting with the original paper, Damon et al., in 1989. That was where the original results were reported. Uh, probably then going to Riani et al. in 2012. That's one of the papers that really showed the issues with the carbon dating, which we'll get into in a second. Maybe Casabianca 2019, Lazaro et al. 2020, Walsh and Schwab 2020. That was another great one. That's five. I'm not sure what the sixth one was, but those five will be good enough for us. Now, maybe Jeremiah doesn't want to talk about what these papers actually say, because if he did do that, then you, the audience, would know that he's full of shit. Your Honor, I object! And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's devastating to my case! Here's what the papers actually say. The dating, the sample for the dating was taken from the bottom left-hand corner. They were, it was cut up into pieces, and they were given to three labs for dating. One was in Oxford, one was in Zurich, and one was in Arizona. The paper that uh, the reported paper, the one in 1989, Damon et al., it combined the results for all of them, and it reported a date of 1260 to 1390 CE. That would mean that the shroud was a medieval forgery in the 13th or 14th century. Now, there were issues raised with the dating almost immediately, but in 2012, Riani et al. conclusively showed that the results from the three labs, Zurich, Oxford, and Arizona, didn't quite line up. They show that there was a systematic bias between the three labs, such that they were heterogeneous rather than homogeneous. What that means is that uh, you'd expect there to be variation between the labs because you know, cleaning isn't going to be perfect between them. There's going to be some sources of error that aren't identical between all the labs, that sort of thing. But that those sorts of uh, random errors, they should be random, right? The amount of variation we see in these results is not random. Or at least there's not a there is a non-random component. There's something more than just the normal random error you would expect going on. So what gives? Well, much later, after some legal wrangling and some arm twisting, the British Museum did release the raw data, not just the data that was published in Nature, but like all the data points. And I think at this point, a visual helps. So I put together a chart that 
uh, I plotted all of the data points from each of the three labs. So you've got Oxford there on the left, you've got Zurich in the middle, you've got Arizona on the right. Now, you might be looking at this and thinking like, oh, they look pretty close, and you're not completely wrong. They are pretty close. According to that paper by Walsh and Schwab, if the Zurich and Arizona ages were just 10 years closer to Oxford's, you can see Oxford's is a little bit further into the past than everybody else's. If Zurich and Arizona's were just 10 years closer to Oxford's, there'd be no issue at all. But small or not, there's definitely an issue. Nobody disputes that. Not even me. The the radiocarbon dating is definitely flawed. So what causes this problem? Well, it's not exactly clear, but there is a reasonable solution proposed by Walsh and Schwab and also by Lazar. See, Oxford had a slightly different cleaning procedure than the other two apps. They use petroleum ether in their cleaning process, which is, which is particularly good at getting out certain kinds of contamination that were present on the shroud. Walsh and Schwab noted that a shift of just 0.7% in weight of carbon-14, if that were modern carbon, 1.2% if it was carbon from the 1700s, that would be enough to account for that difference. Let me emphasize that again. A small difference in cleaning procedures from one lab to the others could be sufficient to explain the discrepancy between the three labs. So what does this all actually mean? Well, if you read the papers, there's two main points you should come away with. First, the dating is in fact flawed, and so you can't say with confidence where within that reported date range the shroud actually dates from. Like, I couldn't say with confidence that it's from 1205 versus 1300. The dating has issues, and we can't use it for that. Secondly, you should take away that we really should do another round of C14 dating with better methods and stuff like that. What Jeremiah wants you to believe, though, is that because of the slight discrepancy, these tests tell you absolutely nothing. They're utterly unreliable, and therefore the shroud is just as likely to be 1st century as it is to be 14th century. This is absurd. This is ridiculous. This is like noticing that your ruler has a factory defect and the lines aren't quite evenly spaced. You know, So you're trying to measure a stick, you see your ruler's messed up, like, oh, well, well, I guess the thing's a kilometer long then. Like, it, no, That's, the reality is this. The difference in C14 content between a 1st century cloth and a 14th century cloth is huge. And it just, you can't just ignore it. That C14 didn't just come from nowhere. You actually have to deal with these C14 results, so you'd have to explain the source of radiocarbon away. And Jeremiah knows this. Even though he doesn't tell the audience this, I know he knows this because he then goes on to try to explain away the radiocarbon dating. So here's what our super sleuths have to say about where all this other radioactive carbon came from. There were cotton fibers woven in, which was a dead giveaway that the carbon-14 tests did not reflect the original shroud, but they tested the patched areas. And guess what? That's when they would have patched it, after the one of the fires from the 1300s. Now, Jeremiah doesn't call it this, but this is known as the invisible reweave hypothesis. Basically, the shroud has been damaged over its history. And they hypothesized that in the bottom left-hand corner, there was damage in the 1300s, and it was repaired by a patch so incredible, so amazing, that it's difficult or even impossible to see, even under very close examination, hence invisible. Jeremiah presents this to his audience. His evidence is that there were carbon fibers woven in with the linen, and he's wanting to conjure this image that there's like a patch it's of a different material it's cotton whereas the rest is linen. that's a dead giveaway he says like there's a whole different kind of fabric being used that's just false there are cotton fibers but it is not the situation that jeremiah is portraying where you've got like this entirely different fabric according to william meacham an archaeologist who published in 1983 he said quote minute traces of carbon fibers were discovered an indication that the shroud was woven on a loom used for weaving cotton. Remember, the shroud is made of linen, so this linen thing was woven on a loom also used for cotton. Returning to the quote, the use of equipment for, for working both cotton and linen would have been permitted by the ancient Jewish ritual code, end quote. So this is echoing the reports of Ray Rogers and Gilbert Rays in 78 and 73, respectively. I want to emphasize again, there are minute traces of carbon fibers. There are a few fibers scattered all over. And what this means is it indicates that the loom that the shroud was used, the shroud is made of linen. The, the loom wove linen, obviously, because it made the shroud, but it also had been used to weave cotton. And some little bits of cotton had gotten stuck in the loom. And the weaver, when he switched over, didn't go through with a magnifying glass and remove every tiny strand of cotton from his loom. So 
couple of those strands managed to make their way into the linen fabric. And that's all it is. That's all you need. So far from being a dead giveaway of some amazingly sophisticated patch that just is just so good, so good you can't possibly see it, it's just an indication that the guy who made it worked in two different kinds of fabrics. It's not that big a deal. So... Okay, that's that's number three. Not an impressive showing so far, but look, we got two more points and they're bound to get better from here, right? Reduce your expectations to zero. Number two, this one, buckle your seatbelts for, okay? <laughs> the VP8 <laughs> image analyzer that was used by these weapons scientists revealed that the image in the shroud has a three-dimensional topographic quality. Ooh, I can't wait for you to break this one okay. down. <laughs> Neither can I, Alan. Neither can I. Notice that the image takes on these 3D qualities where we can actually detect and there's a spatial difference. I'm going to show you this. So obviously if the shroud linen is against your face, but it but it's not against your Adam's apple. So do you see how it it get it goes flat there? So mm. there is not as dense of light in that image. So what this means is that if the shroud were draped over a body or sculpture or some kind of three-dimensional object, the parts that would be closer to the skin, to the face of the surface, are darker. And in this case, darker for the shroud means the coloration is more dense. The actual hue of the coloration is pretty uniform. It's just how many of the fibers are colored. And the, the denser the coloration is, the more the darker it appears. So the closer the fabric would be to a body, the darker it is. And further away, it's lighter. And because of that difference, you can infer height information from that. Now, this is a very interesting feature of the shroud. It's certainly something that would need to be accounted for in any uh, model of image formation. Uh, but I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a miracle, but let's, uh, let, let's hear Jeremiah. Let's see what he has to say about why this means it was magic. This is my number two, because again, no other photo does this. Ah, okay. So the reason it's definitely magic is because, I don't know, therefore God. But, to be clear, another photo could do this if it were designed to do it that way. I mean, you could just, you just had to set it up in the same sort of way with you know, darker being closer and lighter being further away. I mean, you could do that. Modern photos don't do that because our brain is really good at doing it all by itself. So you don't need to encode like this kind of darker, lighter thing usually when you're like, if you're just taking a picture with your smartphone, you can use colors instead. Uh, but this is another thing that gets brought up constantly, like it's a slam dunk. And don't get me wrong. It is a unique feature of the shroud, and any image formation hypothesis would have to take this into account. But again, I don't know doesn't mean, therefore, we do know and it's magic. I don't know means I don't know. So this really seems to be kind of a subset of not knowing how the image was formed. So whatever. You know what? It doesn't matter. Two to five, they kind of sucked, but... Those reasons, they're in the past. Now we're on to the big one. Number one, the most important one, the one that is going to seal the deal. All right, guys. Uh, this is the moment I've been waiting for. <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> Put your seatbelts on, guys. If this isn't clinch it, if this doesn't bring it home, I don't know what will. Reduce your expectations to zero. The Shroud of Turin is legit because all data... And I don't use all lightly as a historian. All the data, excluding the C-14 dating of the lower left quadrant of the shroud, which includes the floral, the numismatic, um, the textile, the archaeological, the hematological, the fabric, and the historical data point to a much earlier origin, which helps us because it exhibits, here's the key word for the viewer, verisimilitude with the world of Jesus. Wow, that was a lot of points. He just kind of galloped past in a gishy sort of way. Now, here's the list again in case you missed it. It went by pretty fast. He said floral, numismatic, which is like having to do with coins, textile, archaeological, hematological, fabric, which is different than textile in some way, and historical data. 
So, I mean, it's kind of weird that he bundled seven points to point one, but it's okay. Let's hear the evidence for these things. Everything we see reflected in the crucified man in the Shroud of Turin is what we would expect if we saw an image of a crucified man from the first century in Judaica. Everything we see on this reflects a first century death of a crucified man. And that's it. You never hear from these seven points ever again. That was a direct continuation. He listed the seven points. He says, they're amazing. They support my point. And then just keeps on going and does not justify a single thing he just said. I am not kidding. Through the whole rest of this presentation, he provides not one shred of evidence whatsoever to support his number one most slam dunk reason. It's not even like he says, oh, here's an unsubstantiated thing with no citation. And then I have to go like dig for the citation to figure out what he meant. No, he there, he makes no attempt to even try to support it. That's your number one reason, Jeremiah. Your number one reason is a bunch of bullshit that you randomly spout off and then run away quickly before anybody can ask you questions. Now, it's difficult for me to know even what I'm refuting, what I would be arguing against, since he doesn't provide any evidence or argument of his own. I could just invoke Kitchen's Razor. That which is asserted without evidence can be rejected without evidence. Fortunately, I have, I think, heard some of these claims before. He didn't tell me, so I'm not sure. But like, here's what I think he's talking about. Let's start with the first one, floral. There were some tests run by botanist Max Frey. He claimed that you he could identify specific species of pollen on the shroud and that these species of pollen would prove that it originated in Israel and further that he could like show the path that it had traveled by the species of pollen that he identified. This has been refuted by more re recent botanists who say that getting down to the specific species of pollen is almost always impossible. And so the genus of the pollen that they can identify, that's common across all of Europe and the Mediterranean. So you can't really get any kind of useful information from that. We talk more about this one in our recent interview with Hugh Ferry, link in the description. Numismatic, people have claimed that they can see coins on the eyes of Jesus, uh, and those coins, they claim, were minted during Pilate's reign. And so the argument is that if there's coins from Pilate's reign on his eyes, then it must be first century. Leaving aside how else coins from the first century could show up in the 14th century, I mean, I can buy coins minted by Julius Caesar right now if I want to, but whatever, leave that aside. These alleged coins are extremely faint and are probably just distortions caused by the image being printed on woven fabric. This isn't like parchment, like you're trying to infer tiny little scribbles on a thing that's herringboned, right? The Meacham paper that I mentioned earlier talks about this briefly. It's probably people just recognizing pat or seeing patterns that aren't there. So next up, textile slash fabric. He splits them out, but I don't know what he meant by splitting them out. So uh, the argument I've heard is that the weave of the cloth is diagnostic to the first century. Basically having something made of linen, linen with this kind of washing, with this kind of herringbone pattern, etc. That's something that was only produced in the first century and wasn't produced in the 14th. Now, I haven't seen any textile expert cited who says that. The couple I have seen cited say that you can't tell anything at all about its weaving pattern. I've seen a couple arguments that some specifics about like the error rate in the weaves indicates it's a later thing made on a machine. I don't know how reliable that is, but what I'm gonna go with is that you can't tell. The weaving pattern could be first, could be 14th, nobody knows. We talked about this in episode three of our turn series. Archeological, don't know what he means. And since he didn't see fit to tell us, I guess we'll never know. Finally, hematological. So he's probably talking about blood types, I would guess. There have been tests run on the shroud. The shroud allegedly has blood, and that blood, they say, can be tested to be human. And more than that, can be tested to be type AB blood, which is rare. There's also the further claim that other artifacts that are linked to Jesus have also tested for AB blood. And so if these multiple artifacts, all of which are associated with Jesus, all have the same rare blood type, then they must be Jesus. Here's the thing with that, though. Because of the way that blood type testing works, a null result where the sample is too degraded to be able to say with certainty what type of blood type it is, is actually the same as an AB result. They, they look the same. And so an AB result should actually be read as AB or null or like or too degraded to tell. In other words, it's not very useful. We talk more about this in detail in our, again with our interview, Hugh Ferry. 
Link in the description below. So that was his top reason, a bunch of stuff he didn't support. But fortunately for us, I guess he completely and immediately abandoned this list of things and went on to talk about something different. Does it also reflect the exact account in the Gospels of the crucifixion story of exactly how Jesus was crucified. So let's check out what we see in the shroud, because you remember in the Gospels, Alan, his legs didn't have to be broken because they were shocked that he was already dead. And what's interesting is that, you know, Jesus uh, um, fulfilled the prophecy in Old Testament where it talks about his legs were not broken. And then that's fulfilled in the Gospels where it talks about they didn't break his leg. Do we also see that reflected in the shroud? So we should believe that the Shroud of Turin is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus because the markings, the abrasions, the bloodstains match the gospel story. And there is literally no other explanation for the shroud matching the gospel story. Are you freaking kidding me right now? Do you really, really think that, let's suppose this was a hoax, because that's the position they're supposed to be arguing against, right? Let's suppose that it was a hoax. Is there any way that a person making this cloth in the 13th century could have had access or known what was in the gospel stories? You think maybe living in a continent that was utterly dominated by Christianity, he might have had a gist of what goes on in the gospels? This is a breathtakingly stupid argument, and there is no polite way to say it. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear why Jeremiah thinks it's stupid. Um, In this book, The Cross of the Son of God, he points out that the most detailed record we have from antiquity about Roman crucifixion comes none other from the New Testament Gospels. Now, he says this, and then less than two minutes later says this. Listen, when I look at the at the correspondence of the evidence of the crucified man. And by the way, friends, I have the benefit of the modern science of archaeology. If this was a medieval forgery, they don't know anything about Roman crucifixion. Archaeology hasn't been invented for another 500 years. Well, which is it? Do they have access to the best record of crucifixion ever, the Gospels? Or do they know nothing about Roman crucifixion in the 14th century? It literally cannot be both. It gets worse because he immediately contradicts himself again, literally seconds later. The fascinating thing about the shroud is it gets everything right about Jesus. And here's something we didn't mention earlier. It matches the oldest images that we have from Jesus from the 5th century, the 400s, and the Byzantine Empire. Are you? Which is it? Would the person who made it have absolutely no idea what crucifixion was? Uh, and he would have therefore gotten everything wrong? Or could he have looked at Byzantine representations, which apparently were accurate, or the Gospels, which are, according to you, the best description of crucifixion we have? Which, pick a lane, man. I mean, usually people can avoid contradicting themselves within the same sentence. Maybe there are specific things that he thinks that you can see on the shroud that you couldn't get from the Gospels, and the only way we know about them are because of modern, modern archaeology. But if so, he never tells us. So I don't know how we're supposed to know that. Do you realize that if any one of these things that we see in the shroud were inconsistent with the gospel story, the whole thing would be a hoax. It's a house of cards. If the legs were broken, yeah, yeah, it's a house of cards. The legs are broken up. Well, it was a good try. It was a fun, it was fun, it was it was a fun conversation, but we clearly know the Bible says his legs weren't broken. The shroud shows broken legs, therefore throw it out. But each one of these things is so consistent, which is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Is it unbelievable, though, Alan? Is it really? Like, why is it so surprising that this image of a religious scene would match the religious scene that it's, a, that it's of? This is bizarre. I, I don't understand it. <laughs> and that's it. That's their entire presentation. This has got to be the worst presentation on the Shroud I've seen, and I've seen a lot. The reasons we have to believe about the shroud are a lot of people say stuff about it. We don't know how the image was made. Therefore, it was God. The radiocarbon dating, which Jeremiah totally understands. Don't ask him, but he definitely understands it. It doesn't work because reasons. The image is unique. Therefore, God. And the image of Jesus matches stories told about Jesus. And to top it off, Jeremiah's entire presentation is backed up by his favorite source. Trust me, bro. 
Now, throughout the presentation, Jeremiah talks about being addicted to truth and how important the truth is. This presentation, this behavior doesn't come off to me as the behavior of someone who's addicted to truth. Now, Jeremiah threw out a bunch of other stuff and his meanderings about his top five amazing points or whatever. I'm going to ignore most of them, but a few of them I thought were worth touching on. We're going to bring up on the screen right now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the land of of Israel in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. And in there, as we said in our body of proof video, is the first century slab that archeologists believe is where the body of Jesus was laying after he was crucified. Oh, archeologists believe that, do they? Like it's the scholarly consensus among archeologists. Naturally, he provides absolutely no source for that claim, but Jared searched for an hour and couldn't find anything in a peer-reviewed source supporting this. Not a single mention in any source. Note, Biblical Archaeology Review is not a peer-reviewed source. Now, that doesn't mean that such a source doesn't exist, but if the scholarly consensus, if this were something that archaeologists at large believe that we had actually located the burial site of Jesus, one would think they'd have mentioned it occasionally. We read, then Pilate ordered the body to be given to Joseph of Arimathea. The Mishnah tells us that if the Sanhedrin condemned a criminal to crucifixion, it was on the Sanhedrin to be responsible for their burial. That's exactly what we're reading. Jeremiah doesn't say what part of the Mishnah he's citing, because of course he doesn't, so it's hard to say whether or not he's right. I'm not familiar with the Mishnah myself, so I defer to an article I found on it. Uh, entitled Jesus Trial in the Latin Talmud by Federico Dalbo in 2019. That article points out that the trial as depicted in the Gospels differs significantly from what the Mishnah describes. It's also worth pointing out that the Mishnah was written down centuries after Jesus' death. Finally, and much more importantly, regardless of what the Jewish law was, the, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus, and the Romans were the ones in charge. So it's not a question of what the Jews would have preferred to have happened. It's instead a question of what the Romans would have done. The specific, Specifically, Pontius Pilate, who, by the accounts of Josephus and Philo, who are historians of the period uh, writing in the first century, Pilate was a brutal dictator who didn't care at all about the customs or sensibilities of the Jewish people. So it seems unlikely to me, at least, that Pilate would have felt compelled to follow Jewish law in order to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, to be clear, there isn't a firm scholarly consensus on this, so far as I'm aware. There seem to be scholars who argue both sides. But so of the two camps of the arguments that I hear, it seems to me unlikely that this dictator who has a track record of brutalizing the Jewish people, of transgressing their customs, and there was, it, it seems like on purpose sometimes just to just for the just for the purpose of showing them that he can it seems unlikely that he would have been kind and disregard and given jesus a proper burial but scientists have speculated if it was some kind of bolt of light it would have caught that would could have had the power to cause something of this magnitude in a linen shroud 2000 years by the way 1800 years before the first picture was taken it would have taken the amount of energy of 6.4 gigawatts. That takes me back to my back to the future days. Scientists have speculated this. Which ones? Don't be ridiculous. Of course he's not going to tell us. The scientists that totally exist. You know the ones that the ones that they live in Canada. They go to a different school. You would know, but they definitely exist. Jared, again, scoured the internet, and we couldn't find anybody repeating this claim aside from Jeremiah himself in a tweet from April except for one random Facebook post from a Christian group in 2022. So cool, I guess. Another thing that he just made up. Now, to be clear, if the light that if, if it was light that made the image on the shroud, it couldn't have just been light that's radiating in all directions like light typically does, because that would make a fuzzy, indistinct image on the shroud. It needs to be kind of going just up and down. That's why Bob Rucker and his hypothesis has neutrons going just up and down. So it wouldn't just be light. It would also be light with very particular qualities. Though, in fairness, at this point, we would be firmly and intentionally in the realm of miracles, of God intervening and changing the laws of physics temporarily. So I suppose light needing special qualities isn't a deal breaker. But it is perhaps something you might want to mention. 
Lastly, Jeremiah talks about the Hungarian Prey Codex. We've dealt with this before, C.R. Turin series part three. I won't answer all of it. Basically, it's a book that was written slightly before the radiocarbon dating, would say, and allegedly shows the Shroud of Turin on it. Go see part three if you want to hear our opinions on that. But there is one piece of this that I really think shows the caliber of uh, researcher we're dealing with here. Why do we have the Hungarian Prey Codex, which has a naked Jesus drawn, which, by the way, for any art history individuals, you have facility in art. You know that medieval art of Jesus never paints him naked. European artists never paint Jesus naked. Therefore, the only way you could possibly have a naked Jesus is if it came from the Shroud of Turin. Never, ever happens. No naked Jesuses. None at all. Never a naked Jesus. Nary a Jesus walking around naked to be seen, right? Now, I'm not a medieval art historian, but those Jesuses look pretty naked to me. Then again, I'm not a rocket scientist, so I guess my opinion's worthless. This presentation is horrendous. And the terrible thing is that this is the level of quality and rigor that passes for good argumentation in many apologetic circles. If you're a skeptic, whether you're a Christian skeptic or an atheist skeptic or otherwise, we should want better. We should demand better. Unfortunately, Alan's video is going to get orders of magnitude more views than this one will. But to fight that, here's what I need you to do. Give this video a like because the algorithm will share it much more broadly if you do that. Then in the comments, there are definitely going to be people who didn't watch the video, who just watched the first five minutes and are spouting off, basically saying exactly the same points already covered. So please, if you do me a favor, go and just let them know that they're wrong. Uh, do it kindly with only moderate sarcasm. So you know what time it is. You've made it all the way to the end of the video, and that means you get a bias. Today's bias of the day is the Barnum effect. If you ever read a horoscope or like taken a personality quiz about what kind of garlic bread you are and thought, man, they really nailed it. They, that's me. They described me right on. That is the Barnum effect in action. Humans are very susceptible to taking general kind of vague feedback, particularly if it is positive feedback and applying it directly to us, saying, thinking, perceiving it as being accurate to our personal situation. We tend to imbue general statements with personal meaning because, well, we are the center of the universe and our own stories, right? The bias gets its name from the fact that it's utilized by magicians, cold readers, other entertainers. It was coined in reference to the Barnum Circus guy. And these entertainers use it to deliver remarkable predictions or descriptions of a person, but really just vague platitudes. This is also coupled with confirmation bias, where you're more likely to remember something that happened if it's similar to what the mysterious old woman said, but you won't remember the half a dozen things that she said that didn't come true, right? Uh, you tend to remember the hits, not the misses. So reading a horoscope or getting a cold read or whatever, it's harmless fun, whatever. It doesn't matter. And, you know, who doesn't want to know what kind of garlic bread they are, right? Just remember the next time you take that Myers-Briggs test and it, it nails your, your personality and it's got you dead to rights, just remember that millions of other people got the exact same result you did. It's unlikely that you're exactly like all those other people. But hey, maybe you are. Maybe you are. And if so, you should find those other people and direct them to this video. But until you do that, remember, until next time, you've always got reason to doubt.